Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Today is the day you have made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. Today is the day you have made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. And I won't worry about tomorrow. I'm trusting in what you say. Today is the day. Good morning. Today is the day. It is Wednesday, the 31st of July. I mean, like, today's it. If you thought you were going to get it done in July, today's the day to get it done. Because today's the day. Whew. Okay, seven months in the books, uh, and tomorrow is the beginning of the eighth month. So, you know, this is also one of those opportunities in the middle of the year to sort of look back at what we thought we might accomplish in 2019 and say to ourselves, hmm, okay, so that commitment that I made right there at the beginning of the year, hmm, um, I'm not doing that. I'm not even pursuing that. I, am I Am I still committed to that? And if I am still committed to that, huh, <laughs> Today's the day. Today's the day to renew uh, my commitment to whatever it was that I was committed to for 2019 that I have obviously failed to keep my commitment. And so maybe that was a Bible reading plan. Maybe that was a plan related to uh, health or sleep or finances or physical fitness or the restoration of a relationship. Maybe at the beginning of the year, you simply committed to saying you were sorry to somebody and you just frankly haven't done that yet. Well, today's the day. Uh, okay, so if you did watch the Democratic debate last night, it was the first of two. The next one is tonight. Uh, let me just go ahead and dispense with several things. If you are experiencing emotional turbulence and the di- dark psychic forces, um, this is an illuminating show where we shed the light of the gospel on everything. So there you go. Uh, that's an answer to one of the candidates. And if you didn't hear that, you're, you are now wondering what you might have missed in the Democratic debates because there's one person running who I find, uh, you know, ridiculous in terms of a candidate, but uh, fascinating in terms of a person, uh, particularly the way in which she is willing to use very spiritual language. And she's not wrong. She's not wrong that there are dark psychic forces at work uh, around us. You and I know that we are people who believe in the reality of the supernatural. We believe that there is a God in heaven and that there are forces at work uh, against him. There is, uh, uh, you know, there there are principalities and powers. There is a present darkness. Uh, Marianne Williamson's not wrong when she says those things. Somehow on the stage with a lot of people who are, by and large, secular humanists uh, and very progressive in their in their ideas about human uh, evolution, she seems just a little out of, uh, yeah. Well, anyway. So that makes it, frankly, uh, kind of fun to watch and at least fun to listen to. If you uh, are in, uh, really concerned about systems and the way the government works as a system, the most interesting person to listen to last night was Pete Buttigieg, because that is obviously his leading concern. I did feel like he missed an opportunity last night to directly quote the Bible uh, when he was asked about should we be concerned about someone's age when we are considering them for a position of leadership, obviously that was like that was like that's like for a little that should be like t ball you should if you know if you're like a legit Christian, which Pete Buttigieg claims to be a person of faith, if you're a legit Christian and somebody sets the ball on the t like that, you know then you 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 whip out your your 
passage of scripture where Paul says to Timothy, you know, don't don't let them don't let them rule rule you out because of your age. Like I don't know. I just feel like when it when somebody tees it up for you like that, dude, just swing. Swing for the fences and let people of faith that are out there listening know, oh, you know what? He actually does know what the Bible says. Okay, so there you go. That's my uh, super quick take uh, on last night. Otherwise, I felt like Senators Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren were not only center stage, not only did they uh, have the most time devoted to their conversations, but their agendas, very, very progressive agendas, uh, particularly when we talk about health care and we talk about immigration, those were uh, very, very progressive agendas presented last night, uh, none of which has any chance of passing in terms of the current constituency of the way our government is formed. So there you go. Lots of chatter about things that would frankly never happen. Okay, up next, Drew Griffin. Uh, he is. He and I are going to talk about the BDS movement. We're probably going to talk a little bit about the Democratic debate. We're also going to talk about what's going on in Syria and Israel, why it matters to you and me. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. know if I dare ask Drew Griffin the trending question on Twitter right now. What is eight divided by two parentheses, two plus two, close parentheses, equal? Yeah, I know. It's hard to do that kind of math in your head, isn't it, Drew? It's the first thing in yeah, the morning. It is, I know. It is, at, it is at 6 a.m. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. Yeah. I need to have, uh, all, I need to have some more coffee. <laughs> it's also kind of visual. So, all right. You and I will circle back to that in a minute um, okay. while I, because I know that you probably, you know, you got, now you're Now you're looking at your phone and you're like, what is she talking about? So Drew Griffin is with us. He is the editor of Providence Magazine. It's one of my favorite go-to places every single day to check in on what's happening around the world and how I can bring a Christian perspective to that. Like, what is the mind of Christ on the matters uh, of foreign policy, particularly in relationship to how the United States engages around the globe? So, Drew, if we can, can we start with just a wide-open conversation about BDS? We hear these three letters, boycott, divest, sanction. We know it's in relationship to Israel. Sometimes we hear policymakers in Washington use this acronym Sometimes we uh, hear it in relationship to corporations. Sometimes we hear it in relationship to denominations or, um, or even, you know, academic institutions. When, when we talk about BDS, what are we talking about? And does it really have any, like, legitimate traction? Well, um, what, what we're talking about when we're talking about BDS, like you said, is boycott, divestment, and sanctions. And it's a, it's a trend – uh, among some people out there, some people on the left, some people within the Democratic Party, um, and some who are, would just be anti-Israeli or sometimes accused of being anti-Semitic, um, who uh, object to the way that the United States uh, interacts with Israel and uh, wants to see basically um, a people, people, individuals as well as the United States and other nations boycott Israel. Uh, to see Israel divested um, of its land and to see uh, the land that they have um, uh, taken over the years that some people claim is Palestinian land, to see that land returned to uh, the Palestinians and for sanctions to be imposed upon Israel. So this is an extremely hard line um, against Israel in the face of what is typically kind of uh, broad-based U.S. support, uh, especially within the government among 
in Israel. In fact, last week, the House of Representatives passed a bill like 398 to 17. I mean, just by overwhelming bipartisan majority um, uh, uh, speaking out against BDS. Um, there are a couple of House members, Elon Omar and uh, Democratic Re uh, Representative uh, Rashid Tlaib of Michigan, who have been openly supportive of the BDS movement. They were critical of this resolution. Uh, they think uh, that the uh, resolution is uh, meant to silence uh, those who speak in opposition to uh, Israel's policies. So um, it's a uh, whether or not it's it's legitimate. I would say you know it is a a legitimate in terms of a threat, a legitimate uh, um, uh, concern that we should have uh, people who support Israel um, that this this is something that has some legs and it has some legs oftentimes underground uh, within the kind of anti-Semitic circles and is um, something that you kind of have to always be on the watch out for. It's like if you're tending a garden, uh, you know, you if you see a weed, you pull a weed. I mean, you, you don't allow the weeds to kind of grow because if you turn your back and you ignore it and you think, ah, it's just one weed or it's just one kind of problem, the weeds quickly can overtake the garden. So it's it's something that I think we have to be on the on the watch for. We have to uh, be on the watch against. And uh, I mean, currently it doesn't have a lot of political support here within the United States. Uh, that it's it's pretty limited, but um, it's it's definitely something that I think is uh, for all those who support Israel and support whether or not you support it in in political terms or religious terms or just in pluralistic terms, knowing that Israel is a nation that has a right to exist. Um, this is uh, a movement, the BDS movement, that is. Um, uh, antithetical to all those values. So one of the things, as a, as a person who spent an, a lot of years in a mainline denomination, um, BDS is a big movement among mainline Christians. And yet in evangelical Christianity, there's just a lot of people who don't even know what it is. And certainly people who um, are a part of um, uh, expressions of the Christian faith that are expressly non-political, they don't have any idea what it is. And so I thought I would raise it so that folks could, uh, you know, have in their back of their mind when they hear those three letters, BDS, we've now set a hook in their minds. Hey, I need to check that out. I need to really see what that person is talking about. It's expressly an anti-Israel um, approach and position and positioning. Uh, and it affects like, you know, people who grow grapes and make wine or people who um, make little figurines out of um, uh, out of olive wood. Like, right. We are we're actually talking about something that not only affects major corporations globally that uh, want to bring technology to us from Israel, um, want to help, you know, people uh, create gardens in the desert or want to help people uh, who need access to drought resistant seed, all of which Israel has developed and is really, really good at uh, medical technologies, these kinds of things. And BDS actually prevents some of that from coming to the rest of us, some of the good produce of Israel coming to the rest of us um, because it's blocked. So anyway, so there you go. Um, that's what's going on with BDS. And it's always a fascinating subject to talk about in terms of the intersection of the Christian worldview and Israel and uh, what's happening uh, multinationally around the globe. All right. Hey, when Drew right. Griffin and I come back, we are going to um, we are going to talk about uh, what's going on in Syria um, and then whatever else Drew wants to talk about. Maybe um, maybe the fear that people have about the ending of refugee resettlement in the U.S. Can we do those two things when we come back, Drew? Sure, absolutely. Fantastic. All right. Drew Griffin is here. He's with Providence Magazine. You can check out what they're doing at ProvidenceMag.com. Uh-oh. 
What's my dot? Uh, uh, yeah, ProvidenceMag.com. Yeah, yeah, ProvidenceMag.com. ProvidenceMag.com. We'll be right back. Welcome back. You are listening to Mornings with Carmen. Uh, I have Drew Griffin on the line. He is the editor of Providence Magazine. You can find it at ProvidenceMag.com. It's at the intersection of, you know, Christian worldview, Christian thought, and what's going on internationally, particularly when we talk about how does the U.S. engage in foreign policy. Um, and so, Drew, let's uh, let's let's take a little trip around the world and let's stop in Syria. Um, I will say I am reading headlines that are, you know, it's this is these've been disturbing headlines out of Syria for a long time, but these disturbing headlines about what's actually happening in these refugee camps. Um, the threat of Turkey to actually invade. Um, I, I just, t- just bring us up to speed on what's happening in Syria, things you think we should know today in terms of how we're praying and engaging. Sure. So Syria is one of those um, uh, cases and topics uh, that I think that we, we have to return to. And we have to remember that a problem doesn't simply go away because the media doesn't cover it you know, all the time. And it also doesn't go away because pol- politicians uh, wish to ignore it, right? Uh, so just because a politician stops talking about it, or a president stops talking about it, or because you know the media doesn't cover it from uh, you know cover to cover, um, sun up to sundown, doesn't mean that the problem goes away. And that's definitely the case for Syria. So for a lot of people, it's moved off the headlines a little bit. It's it's moved to the back burner. Uh, but this is still uh, very much kind of it's not quite the dire situation it was a year ago or two years ago in the height of the civil war. The civil war is winding down. Um, but what remains of this very much you know, broken and fractured uh, country is still uh, the source of a, a major refugee crisis throughout the Middle East. Um, and uh, just simply because the Islamic State, ISIS, uh, has been defeated you know, politically and has been defeated largely you know, geographically, uh, they're still present in the region. They're present undercover. They're present underground. And a lot of times, as we're seeing in some of these refugee camps, uh, the uh, spouses of ISIS fighters who have, uh, you know, been killed. Now these these spouses, these family members, are in these refugee camps, are still loyal to ISIS, and uh, still very much radicalized, and they are kind of fomenting um, dissent within these camps. Uh, against the the Syrian aid workers that are holding them, waiting basically for or orders from their leader to rise up again and fight and fight the Syrian state. So this is causing a major crisis among uh, humanitarian workers and refugee camps in uh, in Syria. And then uh, with Turkey, uh, you know, the Syrian problem is not just contained within Syria; it spreads throughout. Uh, kind of uh, the uh, the Middle East, and now we have this uh, instance in in northern Syria and southern Turkey, uh, the kind of Kurdish area where um, uh, Syrian Kurds and Turkish Kurds kind of have an overlapping area. The United States has been working uh, with the uh, Syrian Kurdish Defense Forces uh, to fight ISIS over the last uh, three to four years, and any kind of uh, Kurdish. Um, uh, you know, uh, supremacy or Kurdish kind of um, control over this region and has threatened to actually invade uh, this this region to remove uh, the Kurds and um, remove the Kurds from this region while U.S. troops are still present. Um, so this area is still very much a powder keg. It still is something that I think is is unstable and should be 
um, uh, on our radar and is still a source for refugees and international refugees. There are still Christians that are present in these areas that are seeking um, uh, refugee resettlement uh, to other nations out of these war-torn areas. And so uh, this is, uh, some of them are seeking refugee settlements into the United States. So this is something that we have to, I think, uh, keep an eye out on. And just simply because it doesn't, uh, uh, you know, isn't on the front page of CNN or Fox News, doesn't mean that it's still not a major issue that the United States should be concerned about. Okay, nice segue there to the question of refugee resettlement here in the United States. There is a proposal by the Trump administration to totally shut down, 100% shut down refugee resettlement for the coming fiscal year. What do we know about that? So this is part of a trend uh, that we've seen uh, with the Trump administration that um, has, uh, from the very outset, um, with uh, despite all of the talk about uh, kind of uh, you know, religious freedom or um, uh, international religious freedom in the Middle East and some of what we've heard out of the State Department. Um, there is a, a huge, there's been a big move by the Trump administration to reduce the number of refugees uh, that it admits into the United States. So this isn't just kind of immigration in terms of like people who are crying across the border. This is kind of a different issue. People uh, outside of the United States, they might be in Central or South America. They they are likely all over uh, the world uh, who are seeking to be political refugees. You know, their country has collapsed in the case of Syria. They're under persecution in the case of, you know, they, they might be Assyrians in Iraq, Assyrian Christians or, or Muslims um, in Iraq that have lost their homes or their, you know, countries have collapsed and they're seeking to uh, become refugees in the United States. The United States has had a, a a long-standing tradition of represent of uh, receiving uh, tens of thousands uh, every year of, of refugees, and those numbers have kind of slowly uh, been on the decline um, over the last couple of years. And the Trump administration has uh, lowered that threshold, lowered that um, uh, total amount uh, every year that they have been in office, and they are now um, uh, proposing. Proposing that uh, they could eliminate it all the way down to zero. Um, the uh, the reasons behind this are kind of you know muddled and I think relatively inconsistent um, of of why that they would uh, uh, you know limit the refugees. A lot of times these refugees are resettled into cities um, and. Uh, there are a huge number of faith-based organizations that work with the United States government in order to see these refugees resettled. And I think it's, you know, it's part of what, uh, when I'm meeting with potential refugees or when I'm meeting with, uh, you know, Christians that are fleeing homes in Iraq and I'm meeting with them in refugee camps in Jordan, um, they are uh, just trying their best to get to the United States and, and uh, to get refugee status um uh, uh, from the United Nations and then to be able to uh, immigrate here to the United States. The Trump administration um, lowered the refugee cap uh, from 110,000, that's what it was under the Obama, to 45,000. Uh, they've now they moved it further down to 30,000, and now they're moving uh, increasingly down to zero. So I think this is something that's, you know, we can talk about immigration, we can talk about the immigration crisis at the border, that's one particular topic. Um, but I think it's it's part of what the United States is, that we are, uh, we are and should be a, um, uh, a place where people who are seeking freedom, seeking the ability to leave, that are seeking um, refuge from political oppression, uh, can flee to. 
And uh, we're not full as a nation. We've got the resources, we've got the capability, and we've got the culture to absorb uh, those who want. And we and we have people within the United States, you know, faith-based organizations, that are willing to step up and say, hey, we're going to help resettle these yeah. refugees. This isn't all falling on the United States government. Uh, so I think it's it's a troubling trend, and it's, it's one that I think will um, uh, not um, show the United States in the best light to the world community if it's actually engaged. So refugees are different than than immigrants, um, just in terms of general categories. And I've got a lot posted at reconnectwithcarbon.com on this topic and subject if you guys who are listening want to know more. Hey, Drew, thank you so much. Thank you for what you guys are doing at Providence Magazine. Um, is the answer to the question one or 16? I'm just going to let you pick one. I think it's, it's a math. Okay. It's a math question. It's got to be one. Yeah, gotta be it's got to be one. Right. I, I Thanks, don't understand. Man. How now we're going to do math, math yeah. on the radio. I love it. All right. Hey, oh, wow. Drew, thanks so much, man. Have a, have a blessed day. Thanks so much. Take care. All right. I got to take a quick break. For those of you who are texting in and you were interested in yesterday's book giveaway, um, uh, so it's not too late for the book giveaway I was doing during my show, um, which is my book, which is Speak the Truth, if you want a copy of it. I don't know if it's too late for those of you texting in about the Joy-Filled Marriage book. I'm sure that if you, um, since I'm reading your text, I will forward that to the people who are giving that book away and see if we can still enter you in that drawing as well. All right, you know, because I'm, uh, I'm reaching out. Uh, hey, i got to take a quick break. Otherwise, I'm going to step all over the, the, the break like I did yesterday. We'll be right back. All right, first let me say thank you to all of you who prayed with us yesterday. Continue to pray with us for Matthew. His surgery was successful. I'll probably be at the pediatric ICU at Vanderbilt the rest of the week when I'm not on air here with you. Um, so thanks for those continued prayers. Really, really appreciate that. Um, encouragement and support. Next up, Irving Hexham. Um, he is a professor. He's also an author. Um, the diversity of world religions has come to the United States or to Canada, no matter where you live and are listening to this. But those of us who are believers are often ill-equipped for any kind of serious engagement with non-Christians. So Irving has a book called Encountering World Religions, um, and he and I are going to talk about it next. So if you want to know how to engage your non-Christian neighbors, this conversation is for you. One of the most exciting words in the English language to me is sale, as in 50% off everything in the store is sale. Hi, this is Callie Breeze with Thrivent, helping you be wise and thrive. You know, I'm a sucker for a sale. If I see a pair of shoes that are 50% off, I'll probably buy them. Did I need them? Nope. But it's the thrill of the hunt that drives me to buy. If you are a sale shopper, do you ever stop and ask, do I really need this item? If you don't, you'll end up with a pile of clutter at home and debt in the bank. And you won't be able to use your finances to live out your faith, to support your family and plan for the future, to plan for important things like preparing for the unexpected, planning for retirement, or paying for college. And maybe most importantly, giving back to others. If the excitement of getting a deal is driving you to purchase, stop. Think twice before you buy. This is Callie Breeze with Thrivent. Joined today by Dr. Irving Hexham. Uh, he is a professor of world religions, and he is his latest offering is actually called Encountering World Religions. Dr. Hexham, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Thank you very much, Carmen. So it's lovely to have you with us. Um, I think that it's easy for listeners to imagine 
running into a neighbor um, or encountering someone in the workplace, certainly children with whom our kids interact at school who come from religious backgrounds or are a part of a practicing religious faith that is different from our own. So this is a book that is written to Christians from the viewpoint of Christian theology, but it's engaging the conversation with neighbors who um, are from other religious backgrounds and practices. Am I correct? That's absolutely correct. And what I emphasize is that in many ways, we're back to the first century, where Christians were surrounded by people who held other religious beliefs. And it's something we've not been used to for about 1500 years in Western Europe, at least, and North America. So we've got to get used to this new situation and learn how to communicate with people. Well, and I think one of the things I genuinely appreciate uh, is the approach that you've taken not only to outline the key religious beliefs, but also the practices. Um, It's one thing for me to understand, you know, maybe theologically what someone's system of belief is. It's another thing for me to be introduced to the kinds of things that a person from that religious group would be doing So maybe you could just give us an example of a belief that is then expressed in a practice in a a religion other than Christianity that you talk about in the book. Well, um, in the book, we give a brief overview of these things. I did an earlier book, Understanding World Religions, which is much bigger and has got a lot more detail. But that's written for college students and people like that. Um, In this one, I try to help people get into the... You know, the setting of their neighbors being a believer in one of these religions so that uh, they get the key points. And I think one of the important things to recognize is that people belonging to other religions like Muslims, um, they vary greatly. There's many different types of Muslim in practice. And also in practice, many of the people that we meet on an everyday basis, um, they're very much like the nominal Christian. They sort of know the main celebrations. They keep Ramadan if they're a Muslim. It's a fast period. Um, A fast period is that's different to what Christians think of as a fast. Um, Muslims during Ramadan um, fast during the day, but in the evening they can eat and they often have big parties. And so they can eat in the evenings, but not during the day. And so there are little things like this. And uh, exactly how it's expressed will vary from group to group of Muslims, um, they're more or less the same, but there are a lot of differences. And so what I try to bring out is that if you really want to get on with your neighbor and to understand their religion in the first instance, you've got to talk to them and get them to explain it to you, because they may be different from what you've read. Uh, And even if you read a lot of books about them, they still may be different uh, in terms of their actual practice. And this is also particularly true with the Hindus, because the Hindu tradition is very much a family-based tradition, and each family often has its own rituals. So one's got to be very careful with these things, and that's why it's so important to take a personal approach that you, first of all, get to know the people and try and befriend them. And this, I think, a lot of Christians are rather afraid of doing this, um, sometimes because they've got doubts about their own faith, sometimes because they think the people they're talking to might be annoyed by it. But on the whole, I found that people are usually quite happy to talk about their beliefs and practices, if you ask them in a um, kind way, so that you, you, know, you, you show that you really want to learn. 
and you've got to sit back and learn to begin with. Um, the problem is sometimes Christians think that, well, you know, this is an opportunity. I'll ask you about your religion. What do you believe? And then say, well, you know, that's really wrong. This is what the Bible says. And you've got to avoid that. It's a long process. And it is a long, this is one it of, is a long process. Yeah. No, I this think is that's a really, thi- go ahead. Yeah. No, I was going to say, this is one of the things I learned through Labrie and Francis Schaeffer when I, I was there years ago, that, um, you shouldn't expect sudden conversions. They always expected people to be converted eventually in God's time. And uh, I think that's how we've got to think about things. Well, I am a big fan of Francis Schaeffer. One of my favorite books of all time is True Spirituality. Uh, and so I, I am, I'm suddenly now even a greater fan of yours. My conversation partner today is Irving Hexham. We are talking about his newest book, Encountering World Religions. Um, Dr. Hexham, I think that one of the critical things that you have just raised is that I have to be curious and I have to be uh, genuinely interested in my neighbor and I have to be um, gracious in my inquiry. And so what your book really prepares me to do um, is to anticipate what some of those answers to the question are going to be so that I will know with with some level of con- I'll have some level of confidence as I enter into the conversation. And I'm not just going to be completely surprised by what my neighbor is saying about their belief system, because I'm going to have had this this overview into Buddhism and Islam and Hinduism um, and other religions of the world as well. No, that's exactly right. And that's what I was trying to get over. And I think one of the other things which, you know, obviously it's not the place of this book to teach people Christian history and Christian theology, although I do a little bit of that. But Christians have got to really take their own education seriously and they've got to know what the church has done. And this would be particularly true with Muslims. A lot of people who are sort of Western Muslims in particular would look upon the Crusades as an attack upon Islam by Christians. Um, But that's not the way traditionally Muslims have seen it. This is a new way of seeing things. Traditionally, they've seen the Crusades as something that was a big failure and the Christians lost. And uh, they write books about their own heroes of the Crusades. If you get to a Muslim bookstore, you'll find there are kids' books on the Crusades about how great the Muslims were. And then we've got to remember that what they were great at was conquering Christian countries. Uh, Mm. So the Crusades were a response to um, very uh, aggressive behavior on the part of Islamic rulers who destroyed the Byzantine Empire and conquered large areas of the world that were solidly Christian. Places like Syria were Christian. Uh, Iraq was largely Christian. North Africa was Christian. Spain was Christian. And all of these areas were conquered. And some of them, like Spain, after 700 years, freed themselves from Muslim rule, but others didn't. And so one's got to remember this background and not feel ashamed of what Christians have done because um, there's a lot of anti-Christian propaganda in the world and they always pull out the Crusades as look at these Christians who are just uh, really bloodthirsty people and you've got these nice kind Muslims. Islam's a religion of peace. Well, I point out that um, Islam proclaims peace but it's not a, re- a peaceful religion as such. It believes that the ruler has got to impose God's law 
or as they understand it and as the Quran teaches it upon all other people. So this is complicated and one's got to be aware of these things. So my conversation uh, with Irving Hexham, he is a Christian professor at the University of Calgary in Canada. He and I are talking about his newest book, Encountering World Religions, and we'll be right back. With me today, Dr. Irving Hexham. Uh, we are talking about his latest book, Encountering World Religions. You can get it from Zondervan. Uh, it is available now. We're talking about the diversity of world religions that have come to the West. We're talking about the reality that our neighbors, in large part today, do not uh, do not share our belief system. And the work that we need to do, not only to understand uh, our own Christian history and uh, sort of a know thyself approach, but also begin to understand and study the religious perspective of our neighbors in order that we might seriously engage them um, in in community today. So, Dr. Hexham, let's um, let's pivot because one of the things that you do in the book, and I think this is really helpful, is that you you help us see religions in some categories. And I'm not sure that folks have thought through this. Um, it's going to be really obvious to you, but you have these Abrahamic traditions, and then you have these African traditions, and you have these what we'll describe as yogic traditions. When we think of um, religions in these categories, like, just go ahead and tell people, what are the Abrahamic religions? Well, these are the religions that trace their ancestry back to the uh, patriarch Abraham. So you have, obviously, Judaism coming directly out of Abraham's descendants. You then have Christianity. And then breaking away 700 years later, you've got Islam. And so you've got these um, religious movements, but all of them claim that their original founder in one way or another was Abraham. So that's why I categorize them as Abrahamic religions, because um, they're going back to and and using the term Abrahamic rather than Abrahamic, Abrahamic mm. here, because it's Abraham. The Muslims would claim to follow Abraham before he became Abraham when, when he was Abraham. So you've got this change in the Bible when Abraham embraces the covenant. And um, it's a matter of where you're you're looking for the true religion of Abraham. Um, But Christians, uh, as Paul says in Romans 4, um, Christians embrace the same faith as Abraham. And this is what links us together. Now, when one looks at the yogic religions, these are religions that the one thing they've got in common is this some form of practice which they call yoga. Now, we're not talking about hatha yoga and exercises here. We're talking about a control of the mind, which is central to these religions. And this is what draws them all together. Um, And you've got a wide range of religions within this tradition, but they share common beliefs. They may have slight differences about it, but essentially they see us all as trapped in the wheel of existence, samsara. And this trapped in existence means that in one way or another, either our souls go on to another body when we die, or our consciousness somehow continues. Because in Buddhism, there is no person, there is no self. Um, 
in Western Buddhism, people have sneaked to self in, which is really very much against the Buddhist tradition. But Buddhist teaching is there is no person. You you are an illusion, really, ultimately. But you're, it's, you're, you're plagued by this consciousness of being a person. And that goes on throughout time. And the Hindu tradition would say that, well, the soul or there, there are many varieties within the Hindu tradition, but there is something that continues over time, but it's trapped. And somebody said to me once, well, you know, it'd be wonderful to live for a million years. Well, it would be maybe if you were living in a good place, but in Buddhism and in, in the Hindu tradition, you can very easily end up in a hell and there are many hells and you can be there for a heck of a long time. Um, and these are hells with real torments. And then eventually you might get back to the level of being a human being. And when you're a human, you can escape uh, mm. if you do the right things, or at least there's the hope of being able to escape. And so this is a totally different way of viewing the world to the Abrahamic traditions, where you have God who is a creator, who's created the universe and the world's a real place. So these are the two major um, religious traditions. And then you have African and other, um, what I would call primal traditions. And these are traditions that very often invoke the ancestors like North American Indian traditions. But in Africa, particularly, I deal with uh, the, the African traditions because they're a much larger form of this tradition. But the other thing I, I try to bring out very clearly in the book is that when we think about African religions, we've got to be very careful because there is a rich Christian tradition coming out of Africa. Many of the church fathers were actually African. And uh, in Ethiopia and the kingdom of Nubia, which was destroyed in the 14th century, um, they were Christian kingdoms that lasted for over a thousand years. Uh, Ethiopia goes on right down to the 20th century. And they were from the 7th century on under constant attack from Islam. And so one's got to realize that there were these great Christian civilizations in Africa. And um, one doesn't really know what ha would have happened in African history if there hadn't have been the Islamic invasions. I think Africa as a continent may well have become a solidly Christian continent as it is today or as it's moving in that direction today. So I think we've got to take the heritage of Africa more seriously than we've done in the past. Well, I'm so I'm so thrilled that you just shined a light on Nubia. Um, I, I have met a person who is from the Nuba Mountains, and he talks frequently about the rich heritage of uh, of Christianity uh, among the people of that region uh, of now South Sudan. And it just, uh, it's just incredible, right? I mean, it is it is incredible to look back over the course of human history and to recognize I have brothers and sisters in Christ from places that I really can scarcely imagine, um, but where but where God has been sowing the seed of the truth of his word for m millennia. And it's just, it thrills my heart. So this is a really helpful. It's really thrilling. Yeah, it's a really helpful book. Um, again, Irving Hexham is the author. The book is Encountering World Religions. You can pick it up from Zondervan. Uh, I have learned something today, Professor. I am Thank going you. to begin. I am going to uh, edit my language, my lexicon. I am no longer going to say Abrahamic traditions or religions. 
I am now saying, say it again so then I can repeat it accurately. Abramic. 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 I'll have to repeat it like a hundred times. Uh, yes, thank you so much. Irving Hexham, thank you so much. What a delight. Friends, I got to take a quick break and we'll be right back. Okay, so for those of you who are um, now during that whole break, you were saying Abramic, Abramic, Abramic. I, thank you, because I was too. You can say Abramic um, frequently because you and I are going to have to now, there, there's something today we have to unlearn in order that we can learn the right thing. And so I'm thinking here about Thomas Chalmers and the uh, the power, like the expulsive power of a new affection. And so I'm going to learn this lingo Abrahamic, I'm going to invite you to learn it as well, right? We have these Abrahamic religions, uh, and then we have these yogic religions, which doesn't necessarily have anything to do with yoga, but it's about these practices. I got to tell you, this is illuminating for me, and it's actually helping me already understand conversations uh, that I have been engaged in. Let me ask you in in the spirit of, you guys have been so gracious and good to pray for us um, in this, uh, as we deal with these medical issues related to Matthew, who's 13, and um, uh, so thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate that. Pray today for the nurses in the pediatric ICU. I talked with several of them yesterday. That is a challenging work environment for so many reasons, but for people of faith, uh, coming alongside families who are making really literally life and death decisions every moment, um, pray, 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 pray for the kids today that are hurting, um, for the parents who, you know, want so much to do something for their kids and are not able to, and then just let your mind range, uh, in terms of all the people who would be affected by that kind of conversation. So just be praying today in that spirit and for uh, those concentric circles. we up back next with Bill English. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.